After four long years of not putting out an episode of this podcast, I'm back and a lot of things have changed, but some things have stayed the same. And we're going to get into all that as the series goes, starting with this episode where I am brewing my latest recipe for a strong bitter. Welcome to, or maybe to a slim few people, welcome back to Big Monster Brewing. I am Matt, and in this episode, I'm going to be making a one-gallon test batch of my latest recipe of the Strong Bitter style, but better known to just about everybody in the beer community as an ESB, an extra special bitter. But before I get into the beer and into brewing and into the real depths of this episode, I'm going to give a reintroduction to this series to anyone that's new to it and a little bit of an explanation to anyone that's returning apart from Dave from Swick, who I'm sure is listening right now. In this show, I go through the entire process of brewing a beer, taking it all the way to the final tasting in most cases. There's going to be some cases, possibly, where the beer just needs to age for a lengthy amount of time in order to get a real sense of what it tastes like. And when I have those episodes, I'll probably split it up with some kind of other wrap-up at the end. But by and large, you're going to hear the entire brewing process and how that beer came out in the end. The start of the show varies. Sometimes I'm brewing for a specific reason, be it a competition or an event. Sometimes I just want to try something. I've gotten my hands on a, a new hop or some kind of ingredient. I want to see what it does, or I just have a really stupid idea. I want to see what it, how that comes out. Whatever the reason is, I'll talk a little bit about where this beer is headed or why this beer is being brewed, I guess is a better way to say that. This is a returning series, if you didn't know. There are back episodes in this feed. I'll be using the same feed that are quite old and in some cases quite different. In fact, very different in the ways I brewed because my setup has completely changed, but not apart, or I should say apart from just the mechanics of my brewing changing. There's also just some ways I approach different styles and long held ideas I thought I had about what had to be done with a particular style of beer. Those have some have changed in that regard as well, but there's a lot of other things that haven't. And the one thing that stood out to me listening to some old episodes recently is that my superstitions in a sense have not changed. I still do some of the same things that I did when I first started brewing seven years ago that I at least I was going to say, think, give me a good beer. They give me the false sense of security that the beer is going to come out okay. That was kind of funny to hear I'm doing some of those things. So that, for me, revisiting these episodes are going to be interesting. I did move this show to YouTube at one point for about a year, and that is when I completely burn out. Because YouTube is a lot of work. Not that audio isn't a lot of work. There is work to do in audio recordings as well. But at this point, I can basically edit audio in my sleep. I've been doing it for well over a decade for about 90% of the content that gets posted on newsaz.com. It's what I know I can do quickly and in some cases mindlessly when I need to do something technically to the file apart from editing content. It's not only is it the, the, the motions I go through, a lot of muscle memory, I have a lot of preset things saved, so it's a, a click and fix. You add video on top of that, and it's a ton of work. And it's it, it got to the point where I felt like I was building a backlog, almost a pileup of work that I needed to get done, not that I wanted to get done. And there's a big difference between the two. When I want to do it for a hobby, for a a, a passion project, as it were, there's a certain sense of motivation behind it. When I feel like I have to do it because it's not done and there's no real reason behind that, uh, you know, it's not like, uh, it's not like I had tens of thousands of subscribers waiting for me. It's not like I was specifically teaching anything. I was kind of doing it for a infotainment value and I, I completely lost the fun aspect of it. And I just had to stop with the, entire media presentation of brewing and just get back to brewing. It didn't take terribly long, like a little less than a year for me to get the itch to do something again, media wise with home brewing, but it was an almost instant decision that whatever I do, it was going to be audio. I 
I know audio. I'm well uh, experienced in editing audio. It is. It's. It's. I mean, honestly, it's my niche in new media podcast specifically. It's. It's what I've been doing in the new media front for. Well, like I was just saying, for well over a decade now with Neozaz. And it's the thing I'm best equipped for, like technically equipped for. I have microphones, I have portable recorders. There's a fantastic app on the iPhone I've been using for years now. And the iPhones just keep getting better in recording quality. So it's, I have, I have, I think I have almost anything to record anywhere at any time at hand. So it's just makes the most sense. And it's the thing that I can get through and get the work done quickly before it piles up and becomes a chore. So Along that, that uh, compiled with the fact that I did hit a true burnout point and that I can kind of maybe see the signs coming this time and adjust, I think has a better chance of this show having a bit more longevity than it's had before. We'll see. I, I can tell you I already have, I'm not even sure, seven or eight beer day, brew days recorded, and I'm just sitting down now because I'm about about to taste one today. Which happens to be this episode, as you probably put two and two together. Or, spoiler alert, it's going to be tasted in this episode. So I'm pretty excited to bring this show back, and I'm pretty excited to talk about the brew day. So let's get started with what I am brewing. I am brewing an ESB, Extra Special Bitter, which is probably what you would see at most local breweries, this, this style listed as. But in competition terms, it's called a strong bitter. And I don't have this in my notes, but to give a rough... Off the top of my head, history of that is because I believe Fuller's trademarked the name Extra Special Bitter as the name of one of their beers. So it's been changed to Strong Bitter in the BJCP guidelines and competition guidelines because of that trademark. I think that's correct. I know Fuller's has something to do with it. It's a trademark part I'm not sure of. I'm not sure if there's a, a different word they use, like a registration or a copyright. But I believe trademark is it's something like a trademark. How many times? That's like way more times than I expected to say the word trademark in this or any episode, to be honest. So its name, in my opinion, is a bit of, of a misnomer. And that's been a problem in competitions. People expect like it just to be this incredibly bitter beer. And there is a bitter aspect to it. For a, a well-balanced ESB or well-balanced bitter of any kind, there's ordinary bitter, best bitter, and strong bitter. There is a degree of bitterness to it. It's 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 moderate. It's noticeable. It may even be classified as high for a good example. But high bitterness is one thing. There also should be a balance of very flavorful malts. There should be some graininess to it, particularly maybe more of a breadiness. There definitely should be some caramel sweet and a little bit of perceived sweetness for the alcohol to balance that out. There should, that's the thing that's, it's a balanced beer or it should be a balanced beer. And that's something that gets a lot of people discouraged in competition of entering these because judges tend, I, I'm not, I am generalizing here, but this is not entirely true. We'll say generally many judges see the word bitter and focus on that and concentrate on the bitter. And when there's anything other than bitter in that taste, they tend to think that that's a wrong or an incorrect characteristic and kind of ding the, the points for it. But if he really sat down and took just the two minutes it would take to read the entry into BJCP guidelines, they would know you're looking for something a little more balanced with a bitter base. And that is one of the things I love about this style. I love a well-made bitter of any level, be it the crushable ordinary bitter the the kind of in between uh light, lighter body more medium more medium bodied i guess best better but esb is is for me where it's at that rich that that multi usually the malt is the forward thing on your tongue when it's done right in my opinion the bitter comes out in the back end it's just a really great experience overall drinking i love this style and it's not just me i i, I i've loved this style since i first tried it I don't even know how many years ago, but now it is coming up everywhere in local breweries. If I were recording this show two years ago, again, I'd be saying I that there's just no ESBs to be found. I have to make it myself to have it. That is completely untrue. I think all my go-to breweries have or are going to have because one of them, I was going to say, I could have said all but one, but just yesterday they posted on their Instagram page. I think it's actually coming out today. They're, they're tapping an ESB this weekend. 
So I think all of my go-to breweries here in Orlando have had an ESB or have one on tap. And I people love it. And I have to kind of think, where have you people been in these past years? Because it has been a great style. It's not a new great style. It's been a great style. And I don't, I don't know why it's catching on, but I am happy it's catching on because I love a well-made ESB. For me, brewing this, it's been a style that's been... I don't want to say completely elusive. I have not been a hundred percent happy with my recipe yet. Now I've won medals. I'm not sure if I've won any gold. I absolutely know I've won silver and bronze with my best bitters and my strong bitter. In fact, I, I got a bronze with an ordinary bitter as well that I, that I, I just recalled from two years ago. My point is not to pat myself on the back, but it's to say that even with that success, I'm still not happy with a hundred percent happy. Let's, let's not get too extreme here. I'm not 100% happy with the result that I've had. So I'm still tinkering with my recipe. This one is a complete rebuild from scratch. It's probably a terrible idea. Typically, when you're adjusting a recipe, you're supposed to change one ingredient at a time and see what happens to it. But I've done that so many times, I'm still not happy. I'm like, maybe I'm just adjusting the wrong recipe. So I'm starting with something completely new here. And we're going to see how that pans out. So without any further ado, let's find out how that pans out as we head into brew day. Okay, let's see if I remember how to do this. So this is an interesting return. One is that I cannot breathe through my nose from some severe weather changes in Orlando. So I'll probably be stopping to take my breath just, just like that. I actually didn't plan to do that. And I am doing a... One gallon test batch of a recipe I've never done before, and I'm doing it on the Anvil Foundry, which I'm not sure if I ever recorded any uh, brew days on the Foundry when the series was still going. I know I did when I switched over to YouTube. I don't know if I did it on the podcast. I'll have to go back and look. And on top of that, I'm not using it as the entire brew process. I'm using it as basically a mash tun, and I'm going to pour the contents into a kettle that I'm going to boil on the stove because it just goes so much quicker and actually I feel I get better results. I don't know. So I'll try to explain more of that as we go and because uh, there's still a few steps. I said I set up the foundry. I literally set it on a table and I put the valve on. So I still have some more setup to go and maybe I'll talk about it as it happens to kind of get me back into the groove of this show. I am fully set up now, and by that I mean I have everything attached. I have the hoses and uh, going from the anvil foundry to the pump and back in, the whole recirculation set up. I have all the pieces together. I'm ready to put the water in. And why I do this as opposed to the, uh, was it mash in the bag, ton in the bag? Mash in the bag, I think is what I used to call it. I don't even remember, man. You really think I'd go back and kind of catch myself up on those episodes so I know what I'm talking about. But what the old ways to do with a cooler, I like the um, temperature control of this better. It's more work to set up, definitely more work to clean, more pieces to clean. But again, I'm wanting to dial in the exact temperature and in some cases step temperatures for even a one-gallon batch to either as a test batch or it's just enough to get to a specific competition or whatever I'm making it for. When I want that precise temperature in the mash, I can't really, I don't really have any other options right now other than to use one of my Anvil foundries because it will hold the temperature within a degree up and down and I can recirculate and uh, help maintain temperature. That That's a little less important, but I can just set mashes is, is the big thing. With one gallons, uh, one gallon batches, that's hard to do because you need enough water to soak your entire grain bill. And then with a mash using the cooler mash tun, I'd have to add more hot water to raise the temperature. Maybe you can do that once. Doing it two or three times is almost impossible with that amount of volume. With something electronic and temperature controlled, I can do that. Now, having said all that, I'm not doing that. With, well, that's not true. I am doing a mash out on this one. But it's a, uh, I, I have a feeling if this recipe turns out well, it's one I'm going to want to do in a big batch, either two and a half gallons or five gallons. So I kind of want to go through 
what the process would be for a full keg either size on this one gallon batch and i would include a mash out in that so there is two steps in a sort of it's not really a step mash but there's two temperature points on this so that's what i'm doing and i'm gonna go ahead and get the water in get that rolling in up temp up the up the temperature and then go and get my malts together for this one That was the last scoop of the base malts for this recipe. Uh, I'm not going to record me dumping every one of these in because there's quite a few. But I'll tell you what the grist is if you're interested in following along one way or another. Uh, i got to find it. There it is. Okay. So base malts. That's what I just weighed out. It's Maris Otter. This is a English, supposed to be an English Strong or an ESB or something along those lines. Uh, whichever we like to call it. The stronger of the three bitters. Hoping it comes out to be that in strength, but my that's my goal. And it starts with two pounds and 12 ounces of Maris Otter, which is like two and three quarter pounds, I think, actually. Then the specialty malts, got a little bit of biscuit, 2.5 ounces, a little bit of 40L caramel, 1.5 ounces, 1.5 ounces of 60L as well. And then 0.3 of 120L. And then that is it. Hopefully... The uh, I've had in my one-gallon batches of bitters all together, all types. I always had a little trouble getting to the uh, gravity range that I want to start with for that style. So it's a little bigger in the base malts than usual for me. And the specialties are eh, roughly the same, maybe just bumped up a bit. But the biggest addition is the... Uh, going to be the increase to my base malt of Maris Otter. So I'm going to finish weighing these out, mill them up, and then when the water's ready, I'm going to mesh in. I just got my brewing salts together, and while I was doing that, I went back into the feed, the big monster brewing feed, to see what the last brew was. And two kind of funny and surprising things. One was that the last brewing one on that feed was 2019. I didn't realize it's been that long since I did a audio brewing episode. And the the funny part that was the that was the surprising part. The funny part was that it was about my first old ale. I found that funny because yesterday I just brewed my latest old ale for 2023 competition season, and it went so well, and I had so much fun. I said this would have been a good episode if I was still doing the auto podcast. And that's why I decided to record today, do these set of recordings, see if I end up putting it together as an episode. I don't know if that's a sign or irony or just funny happenstance that uh, that was the brew that um, inspired me to uh, think about coming back to the show, bringing the show back. And that's um, where I stopped. So anyway, um, what was I talking about? Oh, the brewing salts. I got my salts together. I don't know if we talked much about that in, before my hiatus. That's another long subject. I'll give the short run and maybe more details as we go. I am brewing with reverse osmosis water, which is takes strips everything out. Just All that's left is H2O. And I add salts back depending on what the beer style is. So I just measured everything out for two salt additions or two sets of additions, one for my strike, one for my sparge. I don't know if I'm going to do the sparge yet or not. So we're going to do something a little backwards when it comes to heating up the water, which is probably going to be in the next recording, but I have it ready for two separate batches of water. So let me get to that point to decide how I'm going to do this because of the small volume of water. It's not something I've done before with this setup. I'm going to see if it's feasible. I mean, I know it's possible, but is it going to make things more difficult than if I just put all the water in together and do one infusion mash? That's what we're going to find out here very shortly. I am started now, and I'm starting with that unusual step that I alluded to earlier, and that is that I'm heating up the strike water and the sparge water at the same time. Usually, I don't need to do the sparge water till the mash is well underway, halfway through, maybe even more, because it doesn't take that long to heat up that little bit of sparge water. I only ever use a gallon, gallon and a half at most, depending on the batch size these days. I am using a half gallon of sparge water for this one-gallon batch, and... I'm heating it up now because I'm not entirely sure that leaves me with enough strike water 
to fully submerge the malts when we get to mashing. In fact, looking at the uh, inside of the anvil as it heats up, uh, yeah, I, it may not. So I wanted to get the that half gallon up to temperature that in case I needed to dump it in. I didn't want it to. Um, I didn't want to dump it in too cold and reduce the entire mash temperature. I'd actually like to see if I can get it to the exact mash temperature, which is 153, by the way. That's the temperature we're going to mash in at and add that if I need to. So it's an experiment. I have not sparged a one-gallon batch before. I don't know that it really is even a necessary step. I just kind of want to see if I can do it. And if I can't, I want to be ready. So that's what I'm doing. I just finished milling the grains for this batch and seeing how much of the grains were in the bucket, it might fit into this. It might get covered by this water. Now, one thing I didn't point out that's worth explaining is that there, there is enough water for this brew in here. I, I, I'm not, the, the calculation, it's not a calculation thing. I guess, what do you call it, a volume thing? I don't even know. Uh, again, I'll try, <laughs> I'm trying to explain. I'm going back from video from video back to audio. The malt pipe, the section of the anvil foundry that I pour the malts into mash, has a false bottom. It's a it's a bottom the bottom picture of a pipe with a sealed end, but that end has I don't know about 500 little tiny holes in it, and that bottom of that basket, that bottom of that plate with all those holes, also has four little steel feet on it that are about an inch high to keep it, that bottom from lying directly on the heating elements or the heating plate where the elements are for this unit to keep from scorching, also to keep things flowing and to keep your grains from being burnt. It's, 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 it's multifunctional. So this whole basket is an inch of some above the what? No, how, this whole basket, the bottom of that plate is a, is an inch higher than the bottom of it where the water is sitting. Wow, that was a terrible description. So it's, it's, it's sitting an inch high in the water, I guess you'd say. Ankle high in the water. So there's less exposed water for the malts to, to get in contact. This explanation is going terrible. This might be the best recording I've ever made. There's a, um, it, not all of the water is going to make contact with the malts because of that inch height. I'm sure you figured out what I was saying 10 sentences ago. I'm just trying to put everything I'm saying together and it's not working. So um, let's just move on and then I'll explain whether or not I have to add that extra water or not. And I was going to say why, but I don't think I'm going to try to do that again. I just mashed in and the mesh is incredibly thick like I thought it would be with the whole water in the displacement it's still not right word i'm looking for but with the whole water situation but after giving it a really good stir getting out all the dough balls there's still a considerable amount of still water within the mesh and laying on top of the mesh so i think i'm going to give it a shot at mashing like this the trick is going to be the recycling because that's going to pull some water out and of course put it back in but if we get a stuck mesh, it's going to stick really quick because I think of the thickness of the mesh and the, the lack of, or the little bit of water. I don't know. I'm in unknown territory, so I'm about to try that. And I still have the uh, sparge water handy. It was at, I'm, I'm mashing it at 153. It was at 154. Probably by the time, if I find out if I have a stuck mesh or not, it'll be like 151 or 152. That doesn't concern me terribly. I think I'll be okay. So I'm going to go ahead and try recirculating and see if everything's okay. 15 minutes into the mesh and with the recirculation going, I don't see any problems. The uh, liquid on top of the grain bed was slightly higher than the liquid around it. And that's probably just because it's still draining through that grain bed. So I gave it a stir. I give it a stir about every 15 minutes, even in the temperature-controlled uh, foundry. And I, I think I think we're okay. I'm going to go ahead and just keep this going, keep an eye on it, make sure, uh, obviously, that it doesn't get stuck. 
give it a stir against every 15 minutes and then try the sparge and then see what we end up with in the end here number wise Mash rest time is about halfway over, so I'm going to start getting my boil additions together and going with the tried and true hops that I've used for all my pitters, good and bad, and that's East Kent Goldings, and it's we're using the entire way through this boil, and we got 0.4 ounces at 60 minutes, 0.1 ounce at 15 minutes, and 0.1 ounce again at flame out, and... Well, I was going to say that, well, that is it for the hops, but then, of course we have um, yeast nutrients at 10 minutes. We're a flock around five or so. I used to hold, hold it till two minutes. Uh, now I just kind of get it in the last minutes there so I don't forget it. So somewhere between five and two minutes it'll be added. And that's it. Uh, I guess I'll talk about, no, no, we're going to pitch the yeast. So talk about that later. So that's it and gonna measure those out now get them ready and since this is going to be a kettle boil on top of my stove in one gallon i'm going to put these hops in uh, some hop sacks so that the uh, pellet matter the vegetal matter doesn't take up a lot of room in the fermenter because the fermenter is only like 1.1 gallon and i like to try to take out as much clean beer as that as i can and this helps control that uh the hops at least getting into the shrub Okay, mash has been going for 50 minutes, so I'm going to raise the temperature to 168 to do a 10-minute mash out for the round out the hour. And I'm going to get that strike water back on heat, get that up to about 168 to 170 degrees. No, sparge water. Sparge water. I knew something didn't sound right. Uh, the sparge water is 168, 170 degrees, somewhere around there. And by the time that's ready, this mash out should be done and should be ready to sparge. I have gotten the malt pipe out of the foundry and it's now sitting above it draining and I am sparging. And if I hadn't mentioned it before, sparging is essentially rinsing, taking some hot water and running it over the grain bed to rinse the sugars that are kind of trapped all over those grain husks and in little pockets of uh, uh, grains uh, that have built up as it was... Uh, mashing and getting as much as I possibly can out of the grain bed alone. That's why I'm hoping this works because I kind of calculated my gravities, my starting gravity, based on the fact that I could do that. So we're going to find out. It's going to take me about 10 minutes or so to sparge with not much water, just a half gallon, probably less than that. Then I let it go for 10 minutes or until, or until I hear no more dripping coming out of the malt pipe. And then I'm going to take a reading and See if this worked or not. That draining is done, so now I'm running the wort into my boil kettle. It's going through a fine mesh strainer, just like a little hand strainer that you'd hold. It's got a handle, about a six inch handle on the end. It's round, it's half dome. You can hear it. You can hear it pouring in. And this only takes a few minutes, and uh, I should have my hand ready to turn this pump off so I'm not pumping through it dry. So I'm gonna stop this recording because it's about to happen. I've got the kettle on the stove and the boil should come pretty quick. Another thing I do when I use the foundry as basically a mash tun is I increase the uh, temperature to 180 while that last uh, sparge water is dripping out. I don't like to go much higher than that because I do have a um, the anvil pump that came with it, and it's it's not it's a plasticish head. It's not like plastic. There's it's a nylon maybe. The point is, it's not rated for boiling temperatures. So 180 is like as far as I like to push it because I, as you heard, use the pump to pump out the wort into the boil kettle. Um, but getting it up to 180 means it only has 32 degrees to get to boiling, which is pretty quick on this stove. Now, I took a pre-boil gravity reading, and that's not the number I'm really most interested in. I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in my starting gravity at, at post-boil, and I'll talk more about that when we get there. But this was interesting. It, my Spearsmith said my goal was 1037, and I'm at 1045. It is, with this one gallon using the anvil as a mash tun uh, method, that 
it's usually higher at pre-boil, but not that much higher. It's usually like three to five points higher. This is eight points higher. So I'm really curious to see what my starting gravity is because typically the starting gravity, it'll reach the starting gravity. So there's like a compensation point. So if it's three more now than the average that uh, extra points that it is at pre-boil, I wonder if this is going to be three points over. That will kind of throw a wrench in my plans or what my plan was. And I'll discuss that when we get to it. So right now, we're actually, I've got hot break on this kettle already. That's pretty quick. So this should be boiling in about five minutes. So once that gets to a true boil, I'll start the timer and start doing the boil additions and I'll actually be back to talk about that. I'm at a boil and I added the first top additions and started the timer. And I think I said this was going to happen, the boil should happen in about five minutes or so. It wasn't that. I, I, I don't know how long it was, but it was nowhere near five minutes. And I think I may, out of curiosity sometime, time each little segment of this and how fast or slow, or how long it takes, better said, each part to work. Because I get into, I don't want to say argument, that sounds a little too extreme, but I do get into discussions with other brewers, particularly older brewers that are really kind of like mindset on on stuck in things that they've been doing don't really uh go outside that comfort zone about if it takes as long to brew one gallon on one of these systems as it does two and a half or even five the argument they make is, is that it does so why bother it I, it doesn't matter how many times i say it it doesn't take as long it doesn't it, it just doesn't take as long now there's probably an exponential difference or something that's not the word i'm looking for there's probably some kind of statistical difference you can make between them let's say this i know on an average for three for one gallon it takes me three hours for two and a half gallons it takes me four for five gallons it usually takes me six the way i have everything set up with the anvil foundries right now so there's probably some kind of calculation you can do in there where the investment of time is worth it for x amount more gallons of beer my point is though i never have these numbers at hand when the arguments come out and or discussions I don't want to say arguments when these discussions come up and maybe I should and just out of curiosity I just could, would kind of like to know what everything does take because I say three hours but I don't know today just seems everything seems to be running on all cylinders plus some it, everything seems going much faster than normal so I don't even think this is going to be a three hour brew day for a one gallon all grain batch with an hour mash and an hour boil which doesn't even necessarily need to be done with every beer as it is either both the mash nor the boil but i think i might time a traditional i don't want to say standard traditional 60 minute mash 60 minute boil brew day one gallon on the anvil foundry with the method that i'm doing now and just to see what the numbers look like so that's it i got not much to do brewing wise for well, about 40 minutes now. I probably went on for close to five minutes, but I do have some cleaning to, to do. I'm going to get the foundry parts cleaned and put those away, and I'm done with those. That is the uh, biggest change to doing a cooler with a bag in it. And normally, I just have to empty the bag, rinse it, and then scrub out the cooler fairly well. This is a little more intricate. There's some more pieces, especially using the pup, but... I think the results are better, so it's worth doing, and I'm going to get that done and out of the way now. I'm still a few minutes away from the 15-minute boil edition, the next set of hops, the East Kent Golding hops, and I just kind of, I, I cleaned everything up that I can so far. I cleaned up um, every bit of the anvil, all the parts, all the pumps and the hoses, and uh, I have a bucket that I put, I drain the, um, let the mash tun continually drain into for like that last bit of wort. And all that's clean, all that's put away, and I kind of paid attention a little more this time and see how much more work it is than the other one gallon process I do, and it's significant, and I kind of already knew that, but none of it super difficult. Um, and again, the trade-off is I can dial in every step of this process exactly the way I want. So just kind of, um, I don't know what I'm doing, redefending, but also <laughs> reconfirming that it is more work, but it's worth it. All depends on what your, what your end result 
uh, is that you're looking for. So let's see. Still got a couple of minutes. I don't really want to drone on. I'm going to go ahead and put the 15 minute edition in and then I'll be back for those last bits of editions. Much, much like every beer I make, it's not a lot to do until the very end. And then there's like more than half the things to do in the boil. I've gotten past a couple of boil points at this point at 10 minutes. I put in the yeast nutrients I'm down to the last three minutes. I put in the whirl flock and for this, for one gallon, I just chip off a little piece of whirl flock. I don't bother weighing it or measuring it. It's probably enough. A, a whole tablet's good for what, 10 gallons technically, I think. So I guess, I guess I could draw out in the tenths, but I just go with what I think looks like about a tenth of the tablet. Uh, put that in plus i find in the keg anyway with um i'm using silifine now maybe we'll talk about that sometime later about that switch but now all i have left is uh to put the last hops in when i turn the heat off and then chill it i'll probably just go ahead and do that and then report back in while i'm chilling because i will have nowhere else to go but standing there stirring that pot for like 15 20 minutes I am chilling the wort now, and it's such a simple ice bath. This this uh, kettle, I think, is three gallons if you fill it to the very top. I've never put three gallons of liquid in here because that's one bump and that's it. Uh, but it's a three-gallon kettle. Fits nicely in my sink with just a, a, actually about the perfect amount of room. Put ice all around it on all four sides and a little bit of water. Let the ice melt. Add some more ice. So it's a simple ice bath. It is a bit of a laborious task, but I decided to time it this time, and I just looked at the clock on my last temperature reading, and it was six minutes had passed, and it went, it's down to 100 degrees. I would say crossing 100 is like where things slow down, so it's been six minutes to get that far. I'd say probably another 10 minutes to get at the pitching temperature, which I'm aiming for about 65 degrees. Well I, mean, well, I am aiming for 65 degrees. And I can get it with this ice bath. I can get this down to lager temperatures with enough patience. But it's not going to be just another uh, few minutes. You think with uh, going from a 212 to 106 minutes, maybe it's only two or three minutes to drop it at another 40 degrees. No, no, it will not be. It'll be, I'm guessing, another 10 minutes. Maybe I'm... Maybe I'm, I'll be wrong and pleasantly surprised, but I, I'm going to guess that's roughly what I have left ahead of me. Just stirring and putting in some more ice and stirring and rinse and repeat. Wort chilling is done. I actually overshot, or would it be undershot because it's less. I was going for 65. I'm at 63.5 degrees and it took 17 minutes. So that's not too bad for... I guess one gallon, that'd be more impressive if it were two or three gallons, but it, I do, I had purchased and used a couple times a very small copper immersion coil for this, and it worked, it probably worked a little faster, it was a little less labor intensive, until you got to cleaning. Cleaning those coils are just, I would rather empty a sink of melted ice then clean those coils so that's the trade-off i do so now i'm going to get this in a fermenter and then i'm going to pitch the yeast put an airlock on and get it inside the fermentation chamber and i'll talk about that in well i was gonna say in a minute but it's going to be just a couple seconds the yeast is pitched and i've pretty much switched over to imperial or a mega yeast at this point. I don't use white yeast or white labs too much anymore. And that's just due to mainly uh, where I get my items from. They have, I think they have white labs, but I've been really impressed by Imperial and Omega both. So I'm kind of sticking with those yeasts. So I used um, Pub by Imperial. That's a, I don't know if the exact same or compatible, or no, uh, Equivalent, I guess, would be better set of the Y yeast 1968, I think is the strain number, which I used to use for my bitters when I did the show before for that break. So it's the same strain. We're close enough. I've liked the results. Um, I'm still slanting and making vials of my yeast for vitality starters and build up a yeast bank. So this is about probably fourth generation of that, which is usually kind of the sweet spot. Four and five 
seem to be my best results. So I'm pretty excited about this beer. Uh, otherwise, uneventful. I mean, everything went smoothly. What I'm going to do now is check what the starting gravity is on the sample that I pulled and then talk about that for a little bit. So I'm gonna do that now and I'll be right back. I just took the starting gravity of a sample of wort that I pulled before I pitched the yeast and it is at 1062. And that's interesting for a couple reasons. First, that was my goal. My goal was 1062 in a sense. Okay, this will make more, this will this will make uh, this entire story will make much more sense here in a moment. I wrote my recipe for starting gravity of 1062. The range for the style, now it doesn't, this doesn't necessarily matter because you don't provide these numbers when they're judged, but the, the suggested range for this style, according to the guidelines, is 1048 to 1060. I purposely made my recipe to be over a couple points because I was really sure that the sparging and the uh, really thick mash and the lack of contact with the water in the anvil was going to hurt my overall efficiency and drop the points. Like I was expecting it to be somewhere around 1055 to 1058. So it's obviously not. It's 1062. It's dead on, which is probably the last thing I expected to happen. But here's the thing. This is the first time, uh, not the first time I made a one-gallon batch on the anvil. I've done it before with just a single uh, infusion mash, or, or I, guess that's, I guess that's what you would call it. No sparge. It's a, with a no sparge mash. This is the first time I sparged a one-gallon batch in the foundry. So it's too early to tell if that is how this is always going to work out. I have some more planned. I'm going to find out. And then I'll use the, that data to surmise how accurate the recipes are compared to the process but that was a surprise and 62 is not too bad and in fact most of the local esbs here in orlando have been well above the average abv to begin with so i'm think i'm making something that might be more in line of what judges are starting to expect thanks to our local craft beer scene. We'll see. All depends on the judges. All depends on their knowledge. All depends on their experience with the beer. That's a whole other set of factors. But I am happy with that and looking forward to this beer. And now it should be keggable in less than two weeks. I'm going to say probably 10 days. I might give it two weeks just to be on the safe side, but it won't take long. And... I will talk about whatever step I reach. Well, whatever I reach next is definitely going to be kegging. So I'll talk about that next. I am carbonating the ESB now, and I'm using the Blickman Quick Carb, which is basically, not even basically, it is completely all I ever use to carbonate. It's just so fast, it's accurate, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I love the thing. I don't know how long I've had it now. I've had it for years. I'm surprised most of the components are still okay. I have replaced the tube several times. But apart from that, I love this device. It's one of my favorite pieces of gear. Almost everything from Anvil and Blickman I own are my favorite pieces of gear. Uh, to kind of describe it and make a, a little bit of an explanation, what it is, it's a, it's a diaphragm pump that pulls beer from the bottom of the keg passes it by a carbonation stone that is hooked up to a CO2 tank that's pushing CO2 through the stone into the beer and then pushes the beer back into the keg and that recirculates for however long. And in this case, I do 20 minutes on a one gallon batch. And this is, it's an ESB, it's a British beer, it's supposed to be very lightly carbonated. I want it to be, and when it gets served, about a little less than two volumes of CO2. So I'm trying to get about two and a half, just under that under two and a half like two 2.3 2.4 that's because between uh mainly the loss of bottle and bottling and then opening the bottle for competition if it goes to competition even for bottle serving there's going to be volume loss co2 volume loss there it's almost inevitable so i over carbonate my at least at my uh goal volume to make up for that and two is still fairly carbonated for a British beer. I 
kind of have gotten dinged on that, but I, I think anything less than that, and everything comes off flat and lifeless. So I know they're supposed to be somewhere in like one and a half. Well, high, high one, 1. 1.7, 1. 1.8 is, I think, what the style guidelines kind of suggest. But I think that's just too lifeless for this beer, especially something malt forward. You want something that kind of opens everything up on your tongue, in my opinion. So it's a personal preference. Sometimes it works in my favor. Sometimes it doesn't. And if this ends up going anywhere, it's going to be all up in the, you know, luck of the draw, the judges and their understanding of the style. So we shall see. And I will be trying this once it's done. Uh, not as a full actual final sample, but just going to see where it's at. But that's about, now at this point, about 18 minutes away. And here we are. I am at the final tasting for this beer. Now, I've sampled it along the way. I haven't really taken a full uh, sensory experience, I guess you'd say. I didn't have a full pour, for sure. I tasted it, or sampled it, whatever you want to call it. Uh, see, out of the fermenter the first time. I tried it as I was... Uh, carbonating it uh, after I was done carbonating it, but now it's set for a uh, good another, say, week after carbonation, and I'm ready to take a really extensive look at it and taste and everything else. And look, I'm going to start with, and it is the color, the exact color I would want in any bitter, ordinary, best, or strong. I, I would expect them to kind of graduate from a little bit lighter than this at the ordinary and work its way to where it is now. I could even enjoy this a slightly darker, but it is in that range that I love. This beautiful, not quite, oh, copper, I think is really what it looks like. Like new copper, new, shiny, bright copper. The clarity on this is amazing. It is absolutely crystal clear. There's a teeny tiny head on it. I tried to aggressively pour it to make the thumbnail for this episode look good, but it's not a heavily carbonated beer. I kept it around two volumes or so of co2 probably actually a little less because it's supposed to be by the style guidelines a very low carbonated beer and i tend not to do that with my beers all the time and i wanted to for this one for sure just to see if i could get that characteristic dialed in as well and if it ends up going in a bottle i may have to i'm not going to recarbonate it but i'm probably going to have to bottle it at a high carbonation to make up for what is going to fall out of the uh, uh, suspension as it goes into a bottle. Let's get to the aroma. Absolutely complete malt sweetness. A little bit of caramel, a little bit of dark sugars, like a light brown sugar, not quite a dark brown sugar. Not really going into the molasses or syrupy sweet. Little bit of floral note just a hint of floral beneath all that mostly malt aroma that's that's everything i get out of the or that's the biggest thing i get out of the aroma so now the the biggest factor the taste so let's find out right now on my initial taste first thing that comes out is the malt sweetness of the tongue and palate and the finish there's a little bit of bitter and that grainy, bready character. That really is coming out now in the finish. The more I, the more I talk. Let me take another uh, sample of it because now my palate's adjusted to what I'm going to be tasting here. I took another big sip. I held it for a second or two. And it's mostly malt forward. The bitterness is not very strong. And that is kind of funny. I was actually <laughs> getting the episode files together and I... Heard in my introduction that I was saying that the um, having the term bitter is a bit of a misnomer and also gets kind of confusing and judging. However, that aside, I don't know if I'd consider this bitter enough to be within style. But let's see. It's also very cold. So I'm going to, through the magic of editing, let this warm up a little bit, taste it again, and see if that draws anything out. Because for me, on my palate, not everybody and not every beer. On my palate, sweet tends to get, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Amplified is the word I want to say, but that's not it. Gets uh, accentuated when it's cold and then it's kind of tapers back and lets the other flavors come through on, on like I said, on my particular palate. I've had this discussion with other people and it seems to be all dependent on the person when it comes to something like that. So 
going to give that a minute or two to warm up in my hands and then taste it again, which I just did. And the sweetness is a little less prominent, but hasn't brought any of the bitter out. Now, having said that, talking about the beer on its own, the beer on its own is very good. It's very refreshing. It's very clean. No, definitely no off flavors. And it, like I said, it's malty and sweet. There definitely needs to be more bitterness in this. And I kind of knew that was coming in the samples I was taking, even though I wasn't taking full flavor, uh, full taste of it. But I, I, I kind of expected that. And maybe I'm going into this tasting with a bias, but I really am not drawing the bitterness I expect out of even from guidelines descriptions. Like I, I am not expecting it to be all bitter and nothing else by the title description, but I do expect there to be more balance. It's definitely malt forward and a little sweet for style. It's coming more off like a kind of a, uh, it's going to, this is going to be a weird description, a light version of a big Scottish ale, big Scottish ales in my experience tend to be a little sweeter and, but they're much more, alcoholic in nature and 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 body than these are and, and when i say more I'm, I'm talking by comparison even even at that they're not very high alcohol beers especially compared to american beers but let's see um a couple other factors to take into consideration while i take another sip it's actually a fuller body than it lets on by look it's not a full body but it's a i'd say about a medium body and the car the light carbonation i think is probably right for style but it's not a thing I like in my beers. So personal taste, I would end up putting more carbonation in this if this were not going to competition. Well, actually, I don't think this is going to go to competition. We're going to discuss that here in just a second. But if I were to enter this in competition, this, this is the carbonation level I'd want the judges to sample at. So I'd probably have to package it at a little higher rate than what is what was um, put on the keg to begin with. So let's say... I don't have the numbers in front of me. Let's say I pressurized and carbonated it at 10 PSI to get two and a half volumes. I probably bottle it at 12 PSI just to throw a little more in there in suspension so that when the, between capping the bottle and opening the bottle, that little bit that's going to escape would bring it back down to that two volumes that we're looking for. So a couple of questions here that I have to ask myself about this beer. First, is it, one, I'd send a competition. I'd say no. I mean, I, I think that is no surprise from what I just talked about. It is not bitter enough. I was going to say it's too sweet. That might not be the case. It just might not be bitter enough. If the bittering was up in this beer, it might be at the right balance point that's supposed to be at. It's too sweet forward is the problem. I'm not saying it's too sweet. Would I make this again is the second question. Exactly like this? No. I might try if I have... A lot of faith in this recipe, which I kind of have to think about with a couple more samples of this and maybe some, do I have any old bottles of older recipes? May or may not. That's another discussion. I'd have to consider if I'm happy with this grist because it's not the grist that's a problem necessarily. Although maybe I dial back a little bit of the caramel, malt, the specialty malts, which I think are either crystal or caramel, crystal malts, I believe, particularly the 70, 80, I think. But I would definitely do something about the hops. I'm starting to think now. I've been trying to make this beer entirely British ingredient focused. I'm starting to think that might not be the way to get it the way I, to, to where I want it. That's traditional, and that's probably how the style is invented, and maybe even how it's still made in in England in, at Fuller's in London specifically. But for a homebrew thing, maybe I need to switch gears on my bittering hop and put something in a little stronger. I use East Kent Goldings, which rarely break the 5% alpha acids. That's where a lot of the bitterness comes from. I could still do a 60-minute boil with a German hop with something like, say, Magnum, which is 12 to 14%, get a stronger bitterness, not get any of the hop flavor aromas from that, just the bitterness, and then let the East Kent Goldings do their thing in the later part of the boil that makes it a more British beer. I'm, I've thought about this actually before this recording. I think that's where I'm going to go, but I think I might fall backwards onto my previous recipe and make that hop addition change there and just kind of let this one sit and see where we go after that. Now, I guess the last question, I, I'm not, this is all new. I, I hadn't thought any of this part out. 
am I happy with what I have in my hand? Yes. It's it's a there's nothing what's the word I'm looking for? Technically wrong with it as a beer. Like it's again clean, it's not infected. There's the fermentation was full. I don't the the, the sweetness I'm getting is not cloying sweet. There's a difference between unfermented sugars and sweet characters from malts. And this is not that cloying, cloying um unfermented sugar taste. It's definitely malt driven and again the lack of bitterness and tape not tapering that down so i'm happy with what i made i'm gonna finish this glass there's no doubt about that and it's a one gallon batch i don't think i'm going to take the the um effort to can it i might pull off a couple bottles to kind of compare and contrast even though i think the malt bill is going to change back to what it was before but i'm not going to make a huge effort to save what's in that i'm going to save as much as much yeah I'm going to save as much as I can, but I'm not going to try to preserve every ounce that's in that gallon. If a half a bottle worth of beer ends up spilling out during the very non-meticulous bottling, clean and sanitary, but not meticulous bottling efforts, I'm not going to get discouraged because I am probably the only one that's going to try this. Maybe some of my, some of my brewing friends. So... Not the 100% success I wanted to start this show with, but a learning process. And I got some ideas for the next iteration of this, which is what I do want to get out of every episode one way or another. Even if the idea is, yes, this is exactly how I'm going to brew this again. I want to walk away with something out of this. I don't want to sit there and just kind of shrug, give up, and not know what I'm going to do. I know exactly what I'm going to do, in fact. So that's that's good. There was something from that. And again, it's not a you know, terrible beer. It's just not a, if I got this at a uh, brewery and it was listed as a ESB, I, I, would, I wouldn't tell them this, but I would think this is not an ESB and it's not, but it is a beer and it's not a bad beer. In fact, let me sample it again and see if there's anything else nice I can say about it. It can say it's crushable. It's like, I could drink this. This is actually a really good hot day beer. It's not hot. It's in the 40s. It's Florida, and it's January. I mean, we usually have a nice little two-week cold snap. We've had it for a month now since Christmas. But if it were the regular hot, ridiculously humid day in Florida, this would hit the spot. In fact, maybe I'll make sure I have a well-filled bottle to kind of test that theory because it's it's a good beer. It's just not an ESB. I'm not sure what it is. I think it's a it's a random table beer. It's a Something to drink. Actually, it would go really good with food. It'd go so- really good with something savory and salty. So there's another positive for it. But it's not an ESB. It's not going to be made again this way. And that is really the final verdict on this beer. So that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed what you heard. Hoping the next few episodes have some better successes. But I hope even more so that I get something out of each episode like I did with this one. I hope in the end I have a new piece of information, good or bad, to make the next beer better. So if you haven't already, of course, I need to make the obligatory, please subscribe. And there is a big Monster Brewing Instagram page. It's kind of just my beer page. It's not necessarily only the podcast, but I will have pictures of this beer on there along with the thumbnail that was posted with this video. And I did want to talk about something really quick that we're working on too. This feed, of course, you're probably hearing it on NeoZaz, either through the NeoZaz main feed or the Big Monster Brewing feed on NeoZaz. We've launched a subsidiary network. I'm not sure what you call it, a spinoff network just for Orlando beer and brewing. And it's called OrlandoBeerNetwork.com. And on that, right now, we're hosting, co-hosting along with NeoZaz.com, Big Monster Brewing, and Two Girls, One Brew, and we've got a couple other shows that are Orlando and Beer Focus that we're hoping to add to that as well, as long with, along with a lot of reviews, beer reviews, event reviews, and whatnot, and trying to make a Orlando beer community-focused new media site outside of Neozaz. Not that Neozaz isn't the place for it, but if my hopes go through and we have that many niche-focused shows on just Orlando beer... It seemed time to make its own site. All of this will still be available on news as they're going to coexist for a very, well, they're going to coexist hopefully for a very long time. But as far as hosting the podcast feeds, they should be on both sites for a while until Orlando Beer Network kind of gets its footing and can support itself with those feeds. So check that out, especially if you want to 
look at the directories of what Orlando breweries there are and area breweries, as well as some reviews I've been doing. Uh, we we've on Catacombs of Halloween Horror Nights. We kind of got into a we we're in the early niche of instant reactions for announcements and whatnot for Halloween Horror Nights. And I've taken that idea to beer releases. I try to get to the day of or the day after a new beer is released in one of my core area breweries and do a review on that. That's kind of been my focus for my blog type contribution to this site. So again, OrlandoBeerNetwork.com. And yeah, that is it. So thank you, of course, for listening. I'll be back as soon as the next beer is ready with the next episode. So until then, I will say, of course, thank you for listening, and I'll see you in that next episode. <laughs>